Hey guys, welcome back to The Passive Hang. We're at episode 57, it's Fayon here, and today we welcome Soshi Poketa on the podcast. Really happy to welcome Soshi on the podcast because we met last year when I went up to the trip up to Praxis in Canberra and had the pleasure of taking quite a few classes under her guidance. And in each of her classes, I really took a lot out of how she led the classes. And today we get to discuss what her views are on teaching and how her own teaching style has developed over the years. So this one's a lovely conversation with a lovely human being. I hope you guys enjoy it and I'll see you in the episode. I'm lucky enough to welcome Soshi Poketa onto the Passive Hang. And I'm really glad to have this opportunity because we got to meet each other last December when I went up to Praxis in Canberra and got to have the opportunity to take a few classes under your guidance, Soshi. And so I'm really excited to welcome you on this podcast and yeah, talk a little bit about that experience and then just a bit about your background and your teaching style in particular, because I was really interested and I took a, a lot from that from my experience. But I guess for, for now, like welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to see you here. Um, and I, it's always extra special when a conversation like this happens when you've met and interacted in person there's a whole other like a depth to it so that's really lovely well my secret aim hopefully is that when the world finally opens its doors that all the people that are lucky enough to have had as guests on this podcast that maybe one day you know i can go and learn from them and meet them in person because that would be a, that would be a real treat yeah yeah that'd be awesome so i did want to kick it off with one question which was your nickname which I've heard some people say when I was there which is Puma <laughs> and I was wondering what's the origin of that? Uh, <laughs> it's pretty old um, but without a particularly glamorous origin um, I was pretty much 16 years old and I always had this habit from childhood, which I've kept now into my mid-30s, of uh, nicknaming my friends or people I'm close to with uh, spirit animals. Um, and uh, so we had, like, with our group of friends, spirit animals, and I didn't have one. And I just thought, like, oh, if I were to be an animal, what would I be? And I just pondered on that for a few weeks, and Puma came up. And I announced it, <laughs> so self-proclaimed. Uh, <laughs> um, and it, it was just, you know, like close friends, girlfriends calling me that. And um, when I was in my early slash mid-20s, I started competing in Muay Thai and everyone had a fight name. And I thought, well, I'll just keep Soishi. No one else has it. It's fine. I, I can't think of a fight name, you know, like Dynamite or whatever. Uh, so for the first fight, I was just Soishi. But then soon enough, promoters caught on with um, people calling me Puma. And they're like, well, that's much better than using your first name. So it also became a fight name eventually. So, you know, Soishi, the Puma, Porchetta, or, or just the Puma is in the blue corner or whatever it is. And it's just stuck. Um, so 
I haven't changed in some ways too much since I was a teenager. <laughs> Do you think that it's shaped a little bit about how you act and, you know, cause Puma, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's, it, I, I reckon it, out of all the spirit animals that you could have picked, <laughs> you probably picked a pretty, pretty good one, you know? So, and when, when you think about it, 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 it sounds, you know, soft, but dynamic and explosive and all these like very interesting sort of qualities. So do you think in some way maybe that's influenced you a little bit with, you know, how you act or how you move? I think so. Um, I mean, for it to stick that long and to hear it every day, um, I've definitely like, so, so I'm not a cat or dog person. I love both equally very, very much and all animals but I did spend more time growing up around cats and I really understand their behavior and body language. And like, like some close friends have called me cat whisperers. So sounds really weird, but like that's that kind of relationship I've had. And um, definitely like with fighting or with movement, like you say, being silent and soft, but agile and fast and, I suppose um, taking on inspiring imagery and even subtle body language or movement qualities. I mean, it's not like when I'm training, I'm thinking about moving like a cat, but there's, a, there's an admiration and some kind of influence over time. <laughs> yeah, there must be, right? And uh, aside with the announcer, as soon as I would have heard Puma, I definitely would have dropped that within your name because it's, it's, it's too good to pass up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is pretty awesome. And I mean, I did pick it myself, so I wasn't going to pick gerbil or <laughs> <laughs> sparrow or something like that. Maybe that would have helped when you, before you entered into a fight, right? Because they, they would have <laughs> you know, like, it's like, so she, the, the rabbit, it's like, oh, she's <laughs> run away and then you don't yeah surprise them <laughs> it's be a good good mental trick but uh, yeah recently i just um i know you uploaded this uh, interesting follow-along onto your youtube uh titled revitalizing and Energ energizing which do um if anyone's listening and in interested i recommend to check out and i just i just ran through it before and i i really really enjoyed it and it reminded me of how you ran the classes when I was there, like in December, which is, it was, it, it was kind of like exactly what you titled it. it. That's what it sort of delivered. I like left the session and I was like, all right, I, I just generally feel better after, after doing this. And I think this is a really interesting trait that I, I felt a lot when I was doing your classes because sometimes when you do a lot of like the movement practice and especially like right now I'm doing a lot of solo training at home and it's tough, you know, you, you do a lot of this strength work and then you leave and I mean, it's energizing in a way, but at the end of the session, you're like pretty tired, right? So this almost sits at the opposite side of the, the spectrum of what I normally frequently encounter with with my practice and so yeah i just wanted to ask you a little bit about this concept of yeah like revitalizing energizing and it's um uh, and maybe your 
is this what you like to concentrate and focus on and, and share with, with people through sharing a practice? Um, it's one of the newer and very important aspects of what excites me in teaching and in my own practice. Um, and yeah, it's come from a, a whole journey of spending like almost a couple of decades training in different styles at different intensities. And um, there was, uh, like, like we were speaking earlier, um, in my younger years, there was a time where I was almost insatiable with how hard I wanted to push. I wanted to compete. I wanted to uh, just test the limits of my body and my mind in physical practice. Uh, and um, there was like a lot of aggression, not necessarily anger or violence, but just this like really fiery energy. And like a lot of like professional athletes that do it for a while, I hit that, that territory that came very close to burnout. Um, and I lost uh, motivation and, um, I'll probably like tread back into this little story stream, um, as we discuss like teaching styles and stuff like that. They all, all these stories interlink, but, um, yeah, with like a loss of motivation and energy and inspiration, I, I knew that I didn't want to stop doing physical stuff or to even like change career. It did cross my mind. I knew that there was still a love and a fire for it, but it was very different. And, um, and there were different influences. Um, working with Josef from Fighting Monkey was very helpful. Uh, looking back at my own ancestry, like, uh, so I'm half Chinese, half Italian from the Chinese lineage. There's so many rich self-cultivating practices that are done. So you'd see, um, you know, like a 80-year-old grandma doing some toe-to-forehead and then some arm swings and, and just like looking great in the morning, you know, when other people are like cold in winter or just like trying to down a coffee to stimulate their like systems to wake up. Um, so I, I started to um, gravitate and ponder on how can my training give me back something? Because I always give the training something. And of course it gives me back something, but after a lot of investment. Um, and, uh, and also the gains, if I didn't maintain them, they will also be lost. So I felt like I was on a treadmill or chasing my own tail. And I was like, well, I don't want to do this forever. I still want to move. And I want to feel good. Um, so I don't just like training for aesthetics was never a thing for me with the body, but training for aesthetics with skill became a thing and I got a bit clingy with them. So when I was like, I managed to let that go. I was like, so what do I train for now? Um, you know, I'm no longer a competitor. I'm no longer interested uh, or enjoy doing these you know like uh, handstands and locomotion and, and all this stuff so what do I do and around that time I 
it felt spontaneous. Of course, everything happens, um, I, I believe, like in alignment with your journey, especially when you're more attuned to it. I developed more interest in working with elderly. And I thought, well, half of the stuff I'm doing now is not very useful for them. Or even if they have an interest and are well enough to pursue a, a chin up or, you know, or something like that, who cares? It's useless to them, right? So we have very little time actually in, in our lifetime and like how we spend it is quite, should be quite important. It should not just be like, oh, well, it's what I was told is God and I just do that. So I started to look at how can the practice um, give me longevity, give me energy, make me feel good. Like why did I even start doing anything physical in the first place? And I, if I really go back, I'm like, oh, there was curiosity, there was fun, there was empowerment, um, and there was like an understanding of how everything is operating within my systems, physically, mentally, emotionally. So um, I just started to go that way and, and, you know, dig around and look for people doing that kind of stuff in the physiotherapy world, in the more ancient practices. Um, you can see that stuff in functional medicine or therapies. That's not so much the area I lean towards, but um, I basically wanted a practice that I now nickname a lazy man practice, really tiny investment and very big return. So I want to train um, or do like an official practice maybe for 30 minutes a day and feel great and be strong and awesome. And, and that's what I want. I don't need to train four hours a day to have the same results. That for me is like an inefficient or a unintelligent way to plan uh, my day. And also for uh, the elderly that I was working with, you know, they don't want to do four hours a day. They don't want to work really hard. And maybe they want, but they can't. Yeah, they maybe have spinal fusions and uh, kidney problems and pacemakers. And so it was very humbling to actually work with people who um, were living the reality where they understood that we're not immortal and that what we do with our body, with action, all has consequence. Um, so I started to look into things like you, you may see in the video, I'm like slapping the, the, the arms and the legs and, um, you know, and simulating uh, like lymph nodes in the neck and the armpit. So getting uh, all the other areas that are more vital for our survival, our health, our vitality, than just muscles and joints, like looking at those other systems, respiratory, like, you know, it's super important. Um, and, and doing it as a self-nourishing practice. So you're not just trashing the body or asking it to get you to achieve certain things. You actually like, I care and I'm gonna give you some love and feel good and you know, it, I don't just give nice things to other people. I can do that for myself as well. And, and I want to teach this to others. So now lockdown, okay, no problem. You have all this self-love and pleasure practice. And, um, and I think that that's very important. And another thing that really guides this is also working with the seasons. Um, 
so all this like changes in approach kind of happened over the last three years or so. Um, so I used to train with a program that matched my goals and the goals were either decided by my coach or what I thought I wanted, but it was more based on what I thought others would uh, reward me for achieving it. Well, I didn't even think deeply about what those goals were. And eventually, um, after maybe six years of this, there was a, there was a dullness and, um, I, I saw, it felt shallow and meaningless and uninteresting. And I also got lots of injuries. So it was just time to, to change the thinking. And I saw, oh, well, okay, why would I, if I eat different in the summer than I do in winter and I wear different clothes and I do different activities outside of my movement practice. So summer, maybe I'm outdoor a lot more then why is my training, which is such a big part of my life, not respecting that too? Um, and, and you'll see that um, your energy levels, your focus, your motivation, what you feel like doing is very different. So I was like, let me work with that. And that gives back a lot more. So in winter, more heating practices, more um, cultivating like a hibernation inner warming stuff and then in summer more going out so it's not that i'm only interested in energizing and soft practices but it's timing it in relation to the natural environment when to go hard when to go soft um, and checking in also with yourself before starting um, is today the day to smash it yeah totally i can feel it you know i've done my check-in um, or maybe actually, no, maybe this week is not my week and I should take care. Otherwise, I'll do something silly and it'll throw me off. So how does that look from day to day? It sounds yeah, really interesting in how you use the environment and what's around you to help guide you. And there's a strong sense of like self-awareness, right, that you really need to be attuned to to, to help guide your your actions. So I guess practically, you know, when you do your 30 minutes or however long it is per, per day, mm-hmm. is there a sort of set format at the start where you kind of check in and then it develops or yeah, maybe can you expand a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, like I said, like formal practice time, which could be 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is. And then there's the, um, you're always practicing attitude. So not in a a tiring way, um, but this observation, this self-awareness, movement practice itself would be part of life in itself, right? In in how you're cleaning and how how I'm I'm walking, how I'm doing whatever. Uh, But it would start, uh, first thing I do in the morning will be I go and scrape my tongue. So I'm doing like uh, some basic Ayurvedic things, right? Just to like have that uh, cleanse in the morning. And like most people, I have a mirror in the bathroom. So the check-in starts there because there's information daily 
um, that we can just miss when we're not paying attention. We're just rushing about our day. So I'll look like, what do my pupils look like? What's the white of my eyes? Is the breath uh, regular or stinky? That says something, right? Um, the skin, the... So actually looking in mirror and, and physically, like having a look because your, your body's always giving signs, your nails, your tongue, your eyes, etc., etc. So it'll be... Um, that's just like, it's not like I, you know, do my sets and reps of checking in. It's just like a general thing that's become normal. And then, um, right now in winter, it will be kind of similar to the video I shared a little bit of standing, feeling how my skeleton is aligning on above the feet, how the feet feel on the ground, and then doing very simple circular movements through um, different joints in the body, often from the feet up towards the head, and then seeing from there. Um, usually I don't do too much. Be, uh, I do like a tiny bit and then I do my meditation practice. But let's say in a scenario where I'm teaching, we will actually lately, last few weeks, gather together and have a verbal check in as well. So we'll say like, how are you actually feeling right now and go around the room. And it's interesting because everyone is so different with different jobs, compositions, lives, but it will usually be like 70% of the room is similar, which is very interesting because we're all like connected to this, whatever bigger thing it is. And then from there, you know, if people you can see like body language is like droopy or they're shivering, then okay, boom, we're just going to put music and bounce around and, and warm the body that way. Or maybe people are not cold, but they're, again, like uh, inflammation, swelling. Okay, let's move the lymph. Um, so it's actually seeing what's the general feeling and in some ways experimenting with that. Um, and with with my students, most of them, they'll know that half of what we're doing are experiments. <laughs> yeah, I did want to ask you about that because the classes and the experience that I had, it seemed very intuitive. And there was always these interesting gaps where I was kind of watching you and you had this sort of curious look on your mind. Like it did look like you were either thinking about what to do or, or making something up, but it was always really interesting and good. So I was like, how does she planned the class. Like what, what is <laughs> happening here? And so I did want to question you about that because I guess one part of it is like the self awareness or the awareness to check in. And then I think as a teacher, it's that the awareness to check in as a, as a group, which is really interesting how you open that space up that forum wise. But then from there, it's like, how do we determine the action to take, right? Because maybe in self-practice where you don't really know your toolkit's really small, you know, you don't even know that just smacking your arm or doing that can awaken the senses, mm -hmm. but then especially in the class as well. And sometimes I find this challenge, you know, as uh, beginning to share this stuff as well, that you, know, you get a bit worried about going too far off, maybe the designed path that you've thought of before because you're like, oh, I don't know, like, is, is that going to work or not? And yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a question mark. So maybe, yeah, take yeah. us through, especially like through that, that group setting, how you sort of approach it and how you become comfortable with like letting go with that experiment type feel. Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, you really hit the nail on the head when you said like intuitive. That's exactly, um, I could say the predominant mode of operation, uh, especially in the last year and a half or two, maybe a couple, or maybe a bit longer than that, but pretty recent in, in, in teaching. Um, it's, it's a really clear felt thought that appears in the moment, but I cannot really explain it in words or how, where it's coming from, how it works. But I understand that I am a channel allowing that to flow through me. So I am transmitting whatever teachings are there. Um, I'm not like scientifically planning and imposing. Um, but it's not just esoteric because when it materializes, it works. Um, at the same time, I, I'm very open and keep that communication with the students. I'll say to them like, hey, we're going to experiment. And not all experiments are like fully successful. And I ask them, the regulars, they, they say yes. Um, uh, are you a willing participant? Because we can discover something new. And the experiment is not me experimenting on you, but us co-creating because this little spark of inspiration or this felt thought appeared. And I say to them, this is what's come up. Let's try it. And maybe 10% of the time it's crap. And I'll say, guys, sorry, it obviously doesn't work, but we needed to know, let's scrap that. Um, but often some amazing stuff comes up or simple little things that become permanent additions to how we um, operate together. So I see myself, um, you know, as a leader, not a dictator. And this means I see my students as my peers and not my followers. Um, this is recent and it's, um, like I said, just uh, a few minutes ago, part of this teaching journey that I had. So if I think back to what was um, possibly my greatest strength when I started teaching, you know, not much experience, not much knowledge. And I, I think it would be empathy. Um, that's something you cannot really teach. Um, but a lot of people have quite strong. And it's one of the different important qualities, I think, that are needed for teaching. Um, but at the same time, I was also this super fiery athlete, right? And I really believed, like as young and fiery and pumped, and I believed in working really hard and leading by example. And I still think that's very important. Um, but that mode of operating made the empathy much lower uh, or, or not treated as a strength. Um, it I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I feel that, but it's a weakness, you know, weakness has to be erased. And um, that, that, that started to build like an ego and also expectations of the students. Um, and I then met, uh, uh, you know, amazing mentors that were extremely hard as well. So I, I really admired their style of teaching, you know, very experienced, amazing teacher 
getting crazy results in students. And I was like, I want to be like that. So I did everything to emulate and embody uh, whatever my teacher was doing in my own teachings. So that got me um, getting really awesome results with the students and really awesome reputation for myself as a teacher. So I was like, yeah, this is, this is good. Um, but at, uh, I, I saw anything that was not fitting in my framework as a, you know, waste of time or weakness. So I was quite rigid and, you know, it was pretty much my way or the highway and that stuff always eats you at some point. Um, so after a few years of this, I, I realized I didn't just dislike the teacher I had become. Um, I, I didn't like the human that I was. I was like, I'm not so kind and I don't listen to people so much. And I think I know what they need and I just lead them there, but I should pay more attention. And not only am I not listening to them, but I've been trying so hard with this uh, copycat teaching style of great teacher that I don't even know what I think anymore. And this is very sad, it's a problem. And I, uh, it was really, really hard. Um, so I started to question um, everything. And, and that kind of led to an identity crisis that lasted for a few years, but that was very cathartic and, and uh, empowering and led me to like where I'm at now. Uh, but I, I was questioning, what is a teacher? And what is the role of a good teacher? So I started to see like, well, okay, getting results is one part of teaching. Um, but what came up first was I need to hold a safe space for people. They are coming uh, with some kind of hope or trust. So if I don't give that safe space, then I'm not doing my duty. I'm not being responsible because I've put myself in this position of teacher and then suddenly I'm not taking care in the way that I should. So safe space became very important and very open, honest communication. Um, and, and then this was around the same time that I kind of burnt out, lost motivation. So there were so many questions and um, it, I, it was a time of like partial ego deaths. So it was really good. It meant I questioned everything. I deconstructed it. I reevaluated it. And I was like, I need something new, but I didn't know what that new thing was. And eventually that's where all this like longevity stuff came in and energizing stuff. And um, you know, see, seeing uh, what is really important. Okay, so you improve your health, you, you feel joyful when you're training, um, you are creative. Creativity is like an insane quality and strength that we have as human beings more than, than other creatures on this planet. So if we're doing like physical practices, how do we create and co-create? Um, so this developed the, the, this teaching style now um, where it's very intuitive and seeing like what's in front of me. Um, and it was scary at first, like you said, how do you know if it will work, if it will be good, if people accept it? Um, and that shift came 
like the shift in letting go of of not being afraid to fail of not needing to be the leader leading by example and being the best so if i'm there to hold a safe space for people to develop themselves personally in then i need to hold that space i don't need to be king of that space and um in that space bringing attention to people's weak areas showing them where their strong areas are and evaluating was it a successful session not by how jacked they got or how talented they've become but how has their mood changed during the session are they moving much uh, better this month than last month has their suffering reduced are they having a better attitude with not just their own bodies and their movement but with life with relationships outside are they communicating better so i start to look at what is more fundamental why there's so much inhibition like why do we want to learn um pre-made locomotion patterns that are beautiful because no need to be vulnerable if i learn this and do it well um i won't look silly in front of others and um if i want to facilitate this safe space for people to explore themselves and be fully accepted as their unique vulnerable selves you know good bad ugly whatever i had to lead by doing that myself so being like if maybe i demo a handstand and i fall out of it you know in the past i'd be like oh i should be executed for that and now it's like hey i'm human awesome i'm glad you see me fail so now you are very comfortable to fail endless times and there's no judgment um, because this is a safe space and that was very very important um, and drawing on the strengths from others you know why don't you show this you do it much more beautiful than i do um, you're going to inspire your peers and and this changed the whole thing so not being frightened of making mistakes or of not being better than the students um letting go of this became so freeing and and wonderful this is amazing because I've, i'm sort of trying to picture this uh almost other other soshi like three or four five years ago and it's like i can't i can't imagine right because i've never had that experience as as opposed to the one you know that I'm talking to to right now, but I, I am interested to just see like how how actually was that was that transition? It seems, it, it seems very quite almost radical, right? With uh, how how you've explained it here and what you went through raises up like quite a quite a few things that you know we could unpack, which is you know one around this concept of of safe space and the other one around like this role of like helping host creativity or, or guide creativity because I think creativity can be like a very tricky thing sometimes, you know, like you give someone the open blank canvas and that can be very confronting or very scary. You know, sometimes when I try and write my thoughts onto a, a blank page and getting started sometimes is, is, is quite difficult, right? Cause it's just like, it's nothing, nothing there, but um, maybe just starting on that safe space part, because I did want to talk about one experience again that we shared together was when we were doing this form of standing practice and then you had us hold our arms up 
Uh, so both left and right arms up and I don't know how long it was, but it felt like an eternity. <laughs> and I think when I was there, I said to Ben, who was with me, I was like, despite all the other stuff that we've done this, that, that weekend, which was pretty intense. I was like, that was like one of the most hardest, <laughs> but what was really interesting about that afterwards was, you know, we gathered around for a little bit. We talked for a little bit afterwards and then one one person that was there asked about like, Oh, what was the purpose or the point of, of doing such an an exercise? And you didn't really quite answer him or I think you opened it up to the group. And at the end of it, like he still was like, no, I still don't get it. But even though he didn't get it, like I could see him afterwards still really giving himself into all the tasks, all the things that you were presenting. And I was like, wow, like, yeah, there's this element of like, I just trust in what's going to be presented and I'm just going to do it. Even though like beforehand, this guy said like he didn't really get it. So yeah, yeah, I did want to ask about how maybe you actively create this sort of sense of like, Hey, like I'm guiding you through things. This is, this is a safe space and, um, you know, to, to give yourself into whatever is presented. Um, I see, uh, something like a movement class as, uh, relationship that is cultivated over time and when you are new to something or someone there's no way you can understand or know everything the first time or let's say uh my background's boxing like muay thai and and you go your first class you can ask your teacher how and why you jab or kick in this way but even if they tell you you need to do the reps and be with the people and in that cultural context with multiple exposures before you start to assimilate what is happening. So the intellectual understanding is is important, uh, but maybe especially in the West is overly uh, uh, glorified and emphasized, right? We like to dissect and have these like huge brains full of uh, theory. Um, so I try to answer in a way that the person or that my intuition suggests the person may be helped and it may not have to do with physical practice or it may or, or inspire more curiosity or um, in a language that they understand. Of course, it may or may not go through. But I think the, the, like, let's say you're saying about how to create uh, together, like in a movement class, for example, and, and creating, like you say, can be daunting and very vulnerable, or where do you start? And that's where I will draw not just on intuition alone, but uh, these archive of knowledge, you know, over the last 10 years, I did like train and learn and study and teach a lot. So I'm drawing off of something as well as new inspiration. Um, so using those tools to facilitate creativity or improvisation, um, 
I one thing I found really powerful is to do it myself with a hundred percent enthusiasm. So some because it's very scary. So if uh, like in my less experienced years of teaching, I was gonna do something very awkward or weird or extremely vulnerable, I would be half apologetic and suggest we do it. And that just freaks people out because you're like, wow, the teacher is apologizing for making us do this. It's gonna be awful. Um, but if you like, like last week we did some, uh, each one make up a coordination for others to follow. And the one I picked had like, you know, a little bit of uh, crawling and uh, skipping, but I added also a humping the floor or a bit like a twerk movement. And some of the people were like, no way. And I was like, I have to really go for it or the whole class falls apart. And everyone just did it. So after two giggles, they were really, really into it. It's like, it's just a movement that we don't need to load the story or judgment onto to this. So um, when I think, again, you see yourself as a leader and you go like, I'm going to do this and it's going to be awesome. Then that gives a permission and courage to the others to, to do the same. And maybe they don't understand everything you're doing or even agree, but they can sense that you have a good intention and you're trying to uh, have them grow in that space. Um, and that uh, not just you, of course, because you alone can be too intense or, or warped, but the whole uh, community, right? So uh, the, the, the peers are helping each other, encouraging each other, or laughing together, having fun. Um, and there are also times I have seen, uh, you know, someone come to class sickly, I will say to them, don't put your arms up. Today's not the day for you to do that. Uh, and, um, or we've had times when we had dances, like dance-offs, and you can see someone's just like, it's their living nightmare. It's not the night for it. Then not forcing them to do it as well. So they know that uh, whatever they do will be supported, even if it's not participating in that thing. I'm not sure if I've answered your question. <laughs> I just describe what goes on. Yeah, but I think that, that partially... Or if not, it, it does answer the question, especially that, that, that last part, right? It's almost like as the guide and as the teacher presenting that material, if some people are not in the space to engage with that material as well, you don't have to attach with this uh, concept that what you present has to be done, right? Normally that's yeah. almost what you kind of expect when you present something, right? You're like, this is a chin-up. Now we're all going to do chin-ups and if you guys don't do chin-ups, well, there's something wrong, right? Like, or, or we find some way that they can achieve, achieve the chin-up, right? But you're drawn to this, this expectation that everyone is going to do it. And yeah. that doesn't, yeah, I guess when you move more into the sort of realm of like the unexpected, you know, like the twerk on the, on, on the floor as well, you almost have to let go that maybe some people won't do it and that can be fine. Yeah, or they do it in their own way that is uh, comfortable for them, um, which which happened. A lot of the males did very different looking movement from female, and, and that's their choice, their space. Um, 
if the whole class is not willing, then there's a problem. Mm. But if there's an individual, maybe they're very new and it's very foreign, or maybe their their partner just cheated on them and they had the worst day and they don't want to twerk on the floor. So why will I make them do that? Like you, there's always like giving that benefit of the doubt, right? Because it's usually like a new person or someone who's having an off day. Um, if it's half the class, then something has gone wrong with the choice that I've made or proposed, basically. Can you talk a little bit about how you open up dialogue with the people that come into class? Uh, because, yeah, I really enjoyed when you gathered everyone around a group and um, it sounds like this is something that you commonly do as well. Like, do you have any sort of favourite ways of asking questions or particular mm -hmm. type of questions which you find then create this sense of, you know, safe space or open dialogue for people to share? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I originally got this inspiration from uh, Josef Fruchek in, in Fighting Monkey. He did this in a workshop with 100 people. Um, not necessarily everyone's going to talk, but there's a dialogue. It's not, you know, the teachers at the front dictating to everyone. It's like, because you have around you people very unique and intelligent and, and with plenty to share. Um, so there is like a very simple theme, like if you're just saying not the, the discussion in the class, but how to open, um, it's not done every class. Sometimes we just get in and get to work. But when we do sit or stand or whatever in a circle, um, I'll usually ask if there's new people, include your name. Otherwise, uh, it tends to either be like, how are you doing today? So it could be your mood, your feeling. You can relate a tiny, tiny short story to maybe why you're, you're feeling that way. Um, and the other one, um, inspired by one of my students who, who introduced me to recently to African dance, which is like a new wonderful hobby. Uh, she said like, oh, say a random fact about yourself. And both are very interesting because it's not necessarily what the person says. Like if you go, hey, how are you? And they go, good. It's not the word good, but it's like the tone and the facial expression and the body language and the speed at which that comes out. So all of this is stuff that as human animals, we can develop very much sensitivity in reading. And, you know, what random fact they choose is super interesting as well. It's very telling. Um, and it's never to, like, expose and judge or label anyone. But it's like, what state are they in? Um, and, and that creates a lot of bonding in the group. So maybe some of the, like, more regular older students, they're sharing really amazing facts that no one knew about and suddenly they're like that is so cool you did that when you were 19 or um like it creates something across the whole group right but yeah it's not it's not just the words for sure it's more like what's happening um energetically through body language through tone through this while we are discussing so that's where i pick up a lot of little bits of information which again is never to like invade on any student but to try make a better session for them i'm like ah this feels like we should just start with games right away or we should just stand silently for 30 minutes and 
Um, so yeah, a lot of subtle information coming from this. Can you tell us a bit more about your work around with uh, the movement for with seniors? Um, because that's something you mentioned before that there's been a shift towards like an interest towards sharing all, all the things that you are learning about towards there. Like, so one, like where did that desire sort of uh, grow from? And then two, what, how are you noticing how you have to adapt the material or how you share for this particular type of audience? Um, like I said, it kind of developed spontaneously. I have always enjoyed spending time with elders, um, even as a child and teenager, listening to their stories, uh, asking about, you know, what life was like. And um, there came this kind of, uh, like, realization that these this part of the demography that I quite enjoy being around um, is quite alienated. It, they're not really valued, you know, they're, they're, um, they may not necessarily be in a home, but we're very much about technology and modern things. And um, so there was the like, I like to interact with people who I see as like the, the wise elders, of course, not everyone is, depends how much, how they lived and what work they did on themselves. But there was this like uh, inclination and at the same time, a realization, I was like, there's not much for them. Like how often has someone asked me, do you want to teach kids? Do you want to teach teens? And I'm just like, no, I know I can do like a good job at it. I've tried it, but I have no interest. And I'm just like, they don't need a movement teacher. They will be excel in whatever their heart desires. You know, you, you make them like, you know, you'll be a swimming champion by, by the time you're a teenager. Um, but for the, like most elderly, it's very, very limited. Um, and when I got to Canberra, I, um, I had even rung up a couple of aged care facilities or homes or communities and uh, there's just the response would be like, oh, well, we have physiotherapists. And I'm like, I'm not asking to work with broken machines. What about the human element? What about having joy uh, in celebrating being an empowered, embodied being um, and having fun together and, and uh, progressing rather than degenerating as you have labeled them? Um, so I was like, this is missing. And I felt like there's a little bit of a mission here because people, we cater to all these, you know, young dudes and dudettes and help them get muscle ups and, um, you know, a little bit of mobility and rehab. But what about this huge growing population that have like scraps, right? If very few facilities will have, um, art therapy, dance therapy, it's very rare, so I, I felt a pull towards that. Um, but it's not the only demography I like working with. And um, in Canberra, in Praxis, I teach the longevity classes, which is maybe 85% seniors. And then young people come as well. And the idea of longevity for me was never just to 
uh, have uh, you know elder people longevity for me is uh like a foundational practice practice that gives back to you you know lazy man training small investment big return are you uh breathing well do you have reasonable coordination do you feel good in your body do you have the power to say no to your therapist that you're not going to be like this forever with this horrific disease that only he can give you some you know orthotics or tablets for so um longevity is maybe you're a young elite athlete and you love your sport but i know that most likely in 20 years time if not less you the, your sport will eat you up so do you want to have longevity in your sport and after your sport like these are things that we don't think about just because we're young and healthy but that eventually do meet us down the line um so when i was living back in sydney i i would teach longevity workshops i usually with my i have a friend nick who has balance studio in avalon we co-teach these classes and you would have like pro surfers grandma um housewife uh lawyer like everyone coming in um and it was really like foundational practices but here it just gravitated towards more of an older demography. And I think that's a good thing because Canberra has a lot of older people and we have a movement facility catering to everyone, which now includes uh, older people for sure. What I really liked about taking one of those longevity classes, which is kind of what you mentioned, is this interaction then when you're practicing with this completely new type of person that you don't normally practice with because as you say like it's a culture filled with you know a lot of young blood a lot of people <laughs> chasing after similar things which is a really great feeling as well right uh, but you know especially if you take sort of the partner play work sort of aspect there's a certain type of way or conditioning that you end up getting used to if somebody else is able and you're able to respond back to them in a certain way versus if you're with someone completely different and in the class that we did i remember i think we were doing something with the um with the jenga blocks and and the feet and i was with um yeah a someone who i never really practiced with before like i think she'll see the 60 or 70 but it forced me to adapt and to think in a completely new sort of way to to be a good partner to, to to it was actually more challenging for me in certain ways because then you know the way i had to move and 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 crouch and squat it was different versus if someone else could just mirror all my actions yeah totally um i i i have to say that actually teaching um older people or people who are less physically able for whatever reason has like uh, really upgraded me as a teacher um, because like you said it's more challenging and you have to think very fast on your feet because maybe the person uh, fused ankle or or spine severe issues and you're like movement is for everyone i know this but how do i not just you know have a beautiful theory movement is for everyone like right now this person 
can not stand without being in pain or they cannot stay for more X number of minutes or, or the, you know, we're saying a squat challenge, like what squat challenge, the, the, you know, and you really, that's really like creative, creative teaching, uh, improvising, problem solving at turbo speed because the person's in front of you waiting for instruction and you're like, those plans don't work quick, quick. And, um, and it just becomes like any skill uh, develops much quicker. And again, this whole idea like, well, let's co-create and, and with people who are less confident or used to being like physical, it, it can take a bit longer, but the reward is also, um, you know, like when you get someone hitting a goal they really wanted, it's a huge celebration. But when you have someone who's maybe been hunchback for 20 years that can now like extend enough to look fully at the sky, that's like that person's life has changed in a relatively permanent way. Or, or someone could not pick up something off the floor and then they gained the ability to enter, lie down on the floor, even roll around and come back up. Or, or they come back and they say like, oh, I thought I had to give up skiing five years ago, but I tried it and I can do it now. Like that is a beautiful gift. Um, so it's, yeah, there's something quite special there. Yeah. And um, one other thing that I wanted to add to this um, conversation was earlier you mentioned on about like Chinese culture or Asian culture and, you know, some fun memories that I have is when I go back to Bangkok and my grandma's there every morning she goes out to the park and does a mixture of it's not really like Tai Chi, but it, they, they call it like Chinese dancing and mm -hmm. they do a lot of like the stuff that you shared in the video, which is like rubbing the face and kind of like not, not smacking, but like sort of patting around in the body and then doing some sort of form of dancing. So there is, yeah, there is something there because it's wonderful to see there's a group of, I think it's a revolving door of maybe like 15 to 25 of them and they get there every morning for a, a, at least an hour where yeah. they have this communion, they, they move together and then they either eat together or they go off on their separate ways. And you can see they're all like v quite joyous, very supportive and moving very well yeah. for their age. So, Did you ever join or at least like go and observe? Yeah, I was I was there every morning. I'd say I, I, I would I would do it alongside with them. So awesome. the dancing w was not always easy, you know. I was like <laughs> <laughs> just trying to figure it out myself. But yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, that is something that uh, really struck me as well. Like like you say, okay, you go to Bangkok or Singapore or China or or like a lot of the Asian countries. And this is like quite popular. So not everyone is doing it. But like you say, there's, there's a solid group, like more than 10. And every morning they meet. And every park has at least one, if not several solid groups. And you see like a lot of the, you know, grandma and grandpa just strolling around or even lifting a heavy barrel. And then um, you go somewhere like, uh, like England. I lived there for a couple of years and people are like stick, wheelchair, walker, hobbling, hunched, um, can't go down and up from the floor, 
like again these are generalizations but i'm sure if you pulled out statistics you will also see like what kind of ailments exist more and less in each place so it's like ah oh, well if you move in certain way that's the aging that you can have not just for uh you know the next 10 years because realistically even the people who come to class who are in their 80s they may still live another 20 years it's not that far-fetched and in those 20 years from 80 to 100 if you're already really struggling how is that going to look that is quite scary um whereas like for us we have several more decades you know of course anything can happen so nothing is guaranteed and you can't say like this practice is better than that practice because we will find out when we get there right um but it's just you can see at least like in the cultures where they have more of that like when you tag along with your grandma or you compare to uh you know somewhere like england's very very different aging yes yes indeed there's there's something cultural about it right and it's a different type of energy and the parks always seem like quite quite full um and mm -hmm. certainly this is something that i saw in china as well where you had these crazy dance troops that's what i called them where there was just like 50 to 100 people sometimes in front <laughs> of a really like old speaker just doing this funny type of type of dance and it was amazing to watch so um one other area i wanted to uh, ask you on was um so what about when i guess outside of class when people don't come to class how do you sort of guide people to like do you ever give them any homework or maybe homework's not the right right uh, word but um you know like how can they keep their how do you guide them on their physical practice or engaging with that side of themselves outside of class if they if they can't make it to class but um, per se um that's not actually that common in in at least in recent years um i did used to hand out homework actually like you say uh you know they would have certain things that they're working on and i could write for them or have them write for themselves you know how they would structure their training but right now people come like like i work at praxis which is a movement facility that has uh, like a few teachers and more classes, sorry, classes morning, uh, middle of the day, evening, weekends. So um, people are coming to classes, whether they're doing one a week and that's the only one they do, or we have like the diehard, you know, gym bunnies who are coming like every day or even twice a day. So uh, that's not something I actually sometimes ask people to come less if I feel I'm like, this looks a bit, um, there's won't be much longevity in this. So I'll say like, maybe have a think about like why and which class you want to come to more. So it's more like having them reflect if they're doing too much is more the opposite problem. Uh, but let's say like a regular student has the flu, obviously with flu, you won't do like a lot of the training, but um, 
the the close students are in touch and we communicate and it's very much individual um i also teach meditation classes uh, daily online uh, with praxis and a lot of the practices will be more internal um throughout the day or or for their formal practice so the students individually have a self practice and know what they're doing um, and i'm always there if they have questions but i don't so much like put a recipe and and do that um it's uh i i kind of teach very much in the modality that i personally always learned which is in person and verbal so i've never done like online coaching or just follow a program or uh like it's very um maybe like my idealistic self thinks of like how would the aboriginal uh people you know have like learned or taught and and it's very much that like one-to-one -one, uh quite personal interaction um then of course there's like big classes lots of students some i don't have as personal relationship with but i'll just check in and and they're probably seeing the other teachers as well yeah, it is a nice point about that um, in-person type teaching, right? Because it's a, a different type of flavor. And uh, I guess this right now, you know, this is my first sort of real experience with going with the online coaching because I'm with Thomas at, at the moment and I'm finding it yeah, really interesting to see that process and also to see it, it, the change in dynamic where like previously I used to, have a teacher which I would see every week and we would work in person together and so there's uh, definite pros and cons to each each side of it and there is that one big side of it which is like that uh, that almost personal energy exchange that you get with someone when you can actually interact with them one-on-one -on -one, like and keep on checking in on that and that and yeah. and, and i do I, you know keep on saying to myself oh you know like if i was just in canberra you know like all the time and i could go to these classes and then you know do this sort of work by myself as well it'd be be complete it'd be awesome yeah it's so like there's different personality types and learning styles and for some especially if they're very rational and like goal oriented then uh, online coaching or programming is like perfect it's actually like less stressful than having to like you know have these layers of communication and and um but i'm totally on the other side where like i could have the best program in the world and it will not have a it's a magic is missing and uh yeah it it's always been in person for me but yeah, each one is so different. Um, but like you say, there is a certain transmission and it's not um, when I learn and when I teach or, or develop both our relationship, it's not the information that I'm interested in. Like I like information, but it's that other thing that creates something more powerful yeah very hard to like pinpoint it um but that in-person contact is has been so far the only way i've been able to learn but that's like 
me personally, of course. Yeah, I think, um, it was in a previous conversation way back when I think I had it with Will from Ghetto Movement, where I think he was saying like seek not like the um, the the skills that you want to learn, but like the the just the person that you want to learn learn from, uh, and how that that was so central to uh, to how you should make your decisions with like I guess who, who you interact with and who you get influenced by, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, yeah, so one I. I guess other thought that crossed my mind was uh, you were talking about the fire before as well and how that sort of changed over, over the years. Um, and I was wondering whether, you know, for all these, you know, young movement practitioners out there who have the fire bubbling inside them, uh, it maybe in a, a different sort of stage, would you have any sort of advice that you would like to share seeing as like you've, been through that phase but now you're in a bit of a different phase now yeah yeah um that fire needs to be satisfied so you can't like it's not appropriate to just stop it it's there for a reason and will have a purpose um but alongside that already starts realize you're not immortal you will, your body will outlive this fire, your hobby, um, all these things. So envision, envisioning your future self, like what your whole life would ideally look like, um, inclusive of the achievements you want to have, your athletic or artistic goals, they need to be fulfilled. They, and, and you have that fire as a gift, so it needs to be channeled. But if you are um, not like humble enough or patient enough to do things like check in, to regulate, to maximize your training, really, not to like uh, hold back or, or be lazy um, or, or have like a bigger picture vision, then when there's not a vision, there's blind spots and they will come and get you. So see like, what do you want in your athletic thing? And what life do you think you want after? Maybe you don't know, but at least you're, you're inviting that vision into your mind so that you can work with it and towards it um, rather than just like, uh, my parents got divorced two years ago. I'm a raging teenager and I'm just gonna smash myself and be champion. Um, and, and then like, and then, what um and 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 knowing that um it will give you satisfaction but that satisfaction is limited and you can see this in all kinds of successful people and and athletes why a lot of them after olympics after retirement again no fire getting fat loss of motivation and the world love to use athletes and artists because it's a you know short-term glorified instant materialistic world that we live in so they want to pump push you to to be awesome and then they will forget all about you and the next one is in um so not being blind to what's happening in the world and seeing like what's my vision of my higher self this self that i really 
want and can and will embody, which is inclusive of all my training and all my stuff. But that way I'm not so easily manipulated or swayed or lost in stuff. I find it interesting because sometimes, yeah, I ask myself these questions and especially like, say like handstand and handstand girls and you're like, do I really want to do this? You know, especially when you're really struggling for something and you're investing all this time and it's just like, is this, is this what I really want? And sometimes I come full circle because it's like, then you're like, ah, do I just want it because I've seen it and I'm getting influence uh, from other people, but then it might come back and then it will be like, no, I, I just actually really want to do this because it shows me something about my potential. And so it's, it's an interesting journey sometimes when you, when you ask yourself this question, because it doesn't necessarily lead you away from exactly what you're doing, but it can also strengthen your intention towards it. Totally. If you didn't want to be doing it, it would be a very different feeling. Not it's hard. Should I continue? That will come through everyone's mind when you're facing some challenge, right? And you kind of know that usually the answer is yes. Occasionally it's no, but usually it's yes when it no longer serves you, um, it will become very clear. It will be taken from you or you will just, something very fundamental will change. So it's, it will be, um, at least I, I don't know. I feel like handstand is probably good for you at this stage, right? And, and overcoming the adversity that comes with it is a beautiful and necessary growth. Um, and empowerment. So if something is not serving you, uh, unless you like really push it away, it, it will be a strong feeling and probably the rational mind will shut it off, but it will keep coming back. Yeah, I've definitely, I've had these the sort of realizations or feelings before. And, and when that comes, it's almost like this over overwhelming wave where you Actually, for me, it's almost like a, a a relief because it's like, ah, I can see clearly now. Like this is what mm. I need to need to do. So, uh, yeah, it's a definitely a very interesting. Uh, it can only be described as feeling. Totally, it's like a, even a relationship that's not appropriate or serving you or or both parties. It just becomes clear. There doesn't have to be some catastrophe that shows it's not the right relationship. And then moving away or ending it can be challenging, but it's like, but you just know it's not the right one or when it is the the right one as well. So I think I've run out of some questions that have just come top of mind. Yeah. So she, but this has been a really wonderful chat and um, maybe one, one, one comes to mind that we can end on unless you have anything more to, to share, which is, so what's one random fact that you'd like to share with us today? <laughs> oh, you got me. One random fact. If uh, students are listening, they'll love this because they get put on the spot. Um, run, one random fact. Um, I am 35 years old and I have never driven any car. I have no driver's license and I am learning now the 
how to drive, starting with theory. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. You lasted this long and now, <laughs> so what's, uh, what's uh, I guess, been the change to actually get you to interact with the driving world? Um, necessity, definitely necessity. I've had an interesting disconnect slash aversion with a lot of technological things and transport related things. Um, but also I, I lived in uh, Hong Kong for 10 years and you don't need to drive a car in Hong Kong. You in fact have to be extremely wealthy to have a car in Hong Kong. And then in Sydney, I was also fine. But in Canberra, it's impossible to not drive. Like, mm. it's just designed terribly. Um, so, like, my house is 10 minutes from the gym, but it takes me an hour on public transport. So I'm lucky my partner drops me, but now is time for me to learn. <laughs> well, I hope that's all going well. Yeah, is it... Um... Has it, has it been scary? It's been so long since, uh, you know, when I first started <laughs> learning. I can't really... Um, Remember. I can't remember as much yeah <laughs> um I mean I have I'm only doing like the theoretical course at this stage there's been fear for sure completely irrational and unnecessary because teenagers drive and everyone drives um but yeah the idea of it is pretty foreign and um I'm quite worried about learning how to park but but not not an actual worry you know just uh yeah, so it'll be yeah an exciting new journey, right? You you'll be like complete baby in some areas and quite proficient in others. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be a a nice and wonderful journey for you for these next few months. So, I really have to thank you for jumping on the podcast and having this conversation today. It's been yeah, it's been really wonderful, and there was a lot more more than expected insight into how you think and then how you teach that I have a lot to reflect on after this chat, which I think is, um, yeah, I feel like more, more empowered so, somewhat. So thank yes. you for, <laughs> for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your awesome questions that help me as well, reflecting on my own world and, and, you know, the teaching world and um, yeah, it's really awesome. And I hope that we get to play in person again. And that's it for today, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Soshi Poketa. I really did. Just, uh, it was really nice reconnecting with her. If you guys ever get the pleasure of meeting her in person, she's just someone who radiates a very type of special, caring, gentle energy. And when you take a class with her, you just feel really good afterwards. That's that's just something that kind of really stood out, I think, after all the practice classes that I took with her. So I hope that someday you guys get to enjoy that opportunity as well. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation and hope that it was thought-provoking for all the teachers sharers out there. And once again, thank you to you guys for listening to The Passive Hang, for tuning in, for showing your support. I really appreciate it. If you have any questions or want to get in touch, remember you can feel free to reach out to me via Instagram. That's at Fayon P, at P-H-A-O-N-P, or jumping on the website on thepassivehang.com. All right, guys. Well, that's it for today. 
and I'll see you guys in the next episode.